Just think about when you're most productive. How do I maximize what I'm doing when I am most productive? And for me, it's being upright on two legs. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. In 2013, on Nick's second combat rotation in Afghanistan, he and his detachment fell victim to an insider attack. This ultimately resulted in him losing his leg. Following a year of surgeries and initial recovery, including the use of a prosthetic, he returned to his unit. Nick refused a medical retirement, and he set his sights on returning to operational status. In 2015, at the conclusion of a challenging, comprehensive assessment designed to evaluate his abilities to operate, he returned to his detachment and was subsequently deployed once again to Afghanistan, conducting full-spectrum combat operations. Nick is considered the first Green Beret to return to combat as an above-the-knee amputee. Thanks for joining us on another week's episode of Ultra Habits. This week, we are talking to Nick Lavery, and what an unbelievable character this man is. He is not only physically huge, but his, uh, his depth, his capacity, his wisdom knows really no bounds. And we dive deep and we dive quick into his ethos, and we talk about what life has yielded to him in terms of lessons after losing his leg and how he's actually leveled up as a result and become much more productive and purposeful in his life. We dive into the story about how he actually lost his leg. It's probably one of the most intense stories that we unveil on this podcast today. I really enjoyed this conversation. There's a lot of lessons. There's a lot about what we can do and how we can turn deep loss into triumph. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Please rate this podcast. Reach out to us at www.ultrahabits.co. Sign up for the newsletter and you'll be able to follow my journey on the road to breaking the Guinness Book World Record. Anyways, folks, I'm out of here. I'm leaving you in the capable hands of Nick. Have a great week. Peace. Nick, welcome to Ultra Habits, man. How are you going? I am doing well, brother. Thanks for having me. So you were on Dale Wall's podcast. Dale and I are in a group. I'm actually in this group with all these kind of ex-military dudes. Ironically, I'm the only non-ex-military dude in this group. Um, and he had posted a uh, some, of the, some of the conversation you had. And I went and did some research. And look, I love the accountability piece. You know, I think everything you talk about really resonates with us here at Ultra Habits. Now, at Ultra Habits, we focus on what we call the executive athlete. So people that are out there kicking ass in corporate doing their thing, but they really are super intentional about how they move and groove through their lives. Hmm. And there's a post that you you did not that long ago, and I want to start there. And I think this post was directed to men. It said, Yes, it is intimidating. Yes, it is stressful. Yes, it is difficult. And yes, it's an obligation. Mm. Can you unpack that? 
Yeah, that particular uh, post, which is real recent, I can appreciate the stress that comes with being a man in today's world and being looked at traditionally as the protector, provisionary provider, and the challenges that come with that, assuming you accept that as a part of your life and a responsibility that you choose to take on for yourself. And you think about all the stuff that can come with that preparedness and protective instincts and looking out for myself, the well-being of my family, my children, my spouse, my teammates. There's a lot that could go into that in today's you know world, which seems like it's dogs and cats living together. I, I need to be prepared for anything because I don't know what's going to happen at any given moment. There's a lot that can go into that, preparing our bodies, preparing our minds, taking in the knowledge that we need, having the resources that we need readily available if and when something were to happen. And I think it's the easy route is to say, well, that's not my responsibility. That's not my obligation. That's why we have the police or that's why we have the fire department or that's why we have the military. That's why we have X, Y, and Z. It's their job is to do these things for us in this society that I live in. I would argue that while we are very blessed to have those resources, you are the executive protection manager of your own life. That is your responsibility. And yes, these assets, which again, I've I've spent some time in some pretty horrible places that don't have those resources. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting we don't take advantage of, of what we're blessed to have in the world that we live in, the society that we live in. But I would argue that we have an obligation to be our own personal protection executive mm -hmm. and our own protector and provider. And yes, I know it's intimidating. Walking into a jujitsu gym for the first time is extremely intimidating. It's, it's intimidating for me. And I've been doing this now almost 20 years. If I walk into a new train facility, I even get my hot starts to race a little bit. Like, Oh man, I don't know what I'm walking into. Am I about to be embarrassed? Like, what are the purple belts like here? I know what they're like at my school, but what are they like here? Am I about to just get owned in front of a whole bunch of people? I know it's nerve wracking because I live in the same reality we all do. I'm simply suggesting we have an obligation to ourselves first and then those around us to work past that to equip us to be able to handle what life may throw at us. What in your view or your opinion is the cost to man for not taking this level of responsibility and accountability in their own lives what are they foregoing when they decide not to do that they are foregoing the ability to live on their own terms i would argue they are foregoing freedom in a lot of way i would say they are they are turning their backs on the level of confidence that is sitting there waiting for them. And when you live a more confident lifestyle, that is something that tends to transcend above and through multi facets of our lives, whether that's you as a husband or in any type of relationship, you as a father or a parent, you as a teammate, you as a coach, you as a mentor, you as a friend, 
we're operating with a higher degree of confidence and self-reliance, I think that that has an effect across our entire spectrum of our lives. The challenge again is having the willingness to go through the discomfort and pain and embarrassment and setbacks and failure and the, the, the discomfort that comes, which is required to learn these skills and these lessons. And I think in today's world, it's becoming, we are making it easier on us as a whole to take the path of least resistance. And I do have some, some concerns on what that looks like moving forward here, man. Like I need to share this world with the rest of us for hopefully a decent amount of time. And if we as a society continue to take the easy wrong over the hard right and continue to take the path of least resistance, uh, what does that look like in 10 years or in 20 years or in 30 years? And I'll just close, Ajay, when I say that if, if we see things trending in that direction, then it opens up an amazing opportunity for those of us that are willing to go against the grain and take the hard right over the easy wrong and be willing to put ourselves out there and assume those risks. Because if most are avoiding it, those of us that choose to accept it, it's only going to increase the lead that we have or, or increase the ability for us to make up the gap. Right. So th- this, is, this is exactly where I wanted to go. We went deep and we went quick. I have the view that society is pushing us to outsource more than we should. And we're all looking at our environment instead of looking at ourselves first. Mm. And our primary responsibility should be strengthening ourselves. And then I feel we can then look at the environment. I think too many of us are bitching about the environment without strengthening ourselves. And in fact, that just adds to the problem because there's so many noises, so many voices out there but not enough people that are actually living and being the solution. Now, let's dive into your military experience and career. So in your, you know, you're obviously special ops, and there's a lot in that will go into your story uh, in respect to, to, to your time in the military. But I want to start at the beginning. When you went into the military, did you have this level of accountability? And ownership, or was that something that evolved within your military career? I would place the military without question as the catalyst that really sparked my even my initiation into taking what you just said very seriously and, and adopting it as a principle in which I live. Me, pre-military high school and college, Nick, I was very typical college. I mean. Yes, I played football in college. Yes, I eventually graduated with my degree. And, and those, those are accomplishments I'm proud of. And they took hard work and discipline and accountability in, in these things. But I did enough to, to get by. And I can look back and say that now. Um, my life in the military and assuming this as a lifestyle, one of both passion and purpose and a need and an obsession to really excel at it. That's really what drove my level of accountability, structure, discipline, and some of these other character traits that I rely heavily on to do what I do. How do we replicate 
that restructuring of your values or how you develop that level of accountability for people that don't have the framework of the military? Well, man, I'll, I'll, I'll stop by saying that while the military is a, is an asset and a lifestyle, which if you want to remain and if you want to excel, you will adopt these principles. These are nothing more than, than choices. You know, these are options that we all have. And I've been fortunate to be placed in positions now for the last going on 16 years where, again, I had to take these things on. They really what the, the only other option was for me to find an entirely different profession, or a different lifestyle. So once I committed to this as being what I'm going to do, then these are what this is what comes with that. But the military is a mechanism to learn the lessons. These are but these are just these are options that anyone can choose to accept. I would say that a good starting place, a good starting point is recognizing that a lot of us have a difficult relationship with the word fault. It's your fault. This was my fault. If you can put that aside for a second and just look at responsibility and maybe slice those into two different things, those are not synonymous with each other. It it doesn't matter whose fault it is that this thing happened. It doesn't matter whose fault it was that you were treated a certain way or this circumstance didn't work out in your favor. It is, however, 100% your responsibility to find a way to deal with that pain, that struggle, those outcomes, and, and navigate through that into a place of both success and happiness. That is your responsibility, period, all stop. And if you're going to sit there and say that, it's someone else's responsibility for you to have the lifestyle you want. You're going to be sitting around looking around for a really long time. So while that can be difficult for us to accept, I think it is absolutely critical. So my, my first piece of advice would be separate fault and responsibility. Realize that fault is irrelevant and it is your responsibility regardless. It's a much easier way to live though, too, Nick. Right. Like you're, you know, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. And it is extreme accountability in that Mm. program because we don't have our sponsors and the program does not allow us to sit in resentment, fear. And we are constantly looking at ourselves to ensure that, you know, for a lot of people, particularly new people, it's life or death. Right. You know, that they are not necessarily operating on how they feel. They're operating by principles. Mm. and. I find it a much easier way to live when you don't go into the internal argument around the justification, who's done what. You know, my sponsor, he's a stoic. He says to me, your your God is goodwill and concern. Your conduct is your God. Mm. Right. And for me, that is salvation. Like that for me, if if I'm focused on how I conduct myself. Then it removes me from all the psychological uh, banter and confusion, which happens as human beings, right? Because, and that's what you're saying. Yeah. And I mean, first off, congratulations, brother. That's, that's outstanding um, that you're in that community and and you're, and you're, you're still in that community and putting in that work and helping others. So congratulations, amazing stuff. I would take what you just said a step farther. I agree with everything you just said. And perhaps, is it easier or is it simpler? 
to live to live that way. I, I would argue that without question, it is mm-hmm. quite simple. It's it's actually I don't know if it gets much simpler. I, I would say that there could be times when it could be very difficult to actually do that. There won't be easy, but it is simple. And I think a lot of times we try to overcomplicate some of this stuff and make it this this complex system that I just don't know enough and I haven't read enough books and I haven't been to enough meetings and I don't follow the right people on social media. And we, we lie to ourselves in a lot of way to create this overly complex process when actually it's quite simple. Disregard fault for a second. This is your life. This is your responsibility to navigate through these trials and tribulations and circumstances. No one is coming to do it for you ever. No one is coming to do it for you. You need to do it yourself. And I think kind of like, like we started out here, man, if, if you want to change the world, you got to start by changing yourself. And I know a lot of us have difficulties with the word change because maybe it implies that there's something wrong with you. And per, perhaps there is, but perhaps there isn't. Because if I'm better today than I was yesterday, well, I've changed. Okay, I've changed. So placing a, a high amount of energy and bandwidth and focus on ourselves and our own improvement, those of us in the military have a difficult time with this because it comes across as selfish when we live this life of selfless service. But when you place that amount of energy on your own wellness and your own growth, and your commitment to 1% better every single day, you actually become a much greater asset to serve those around you, your family, your friends, your teammates. So while this this concept of ownership and accountability can absolutely be difficult, Mm. it it doesn't get much more simpler than this though, brother, does it? No, and I think your point was beautiful. Like, I mean, even within 12 Steps, we talk about a simple program for complicated individuals. And I think for many people, they have to move through the complexity and, you know, like reading lots of books and, you know, a lot of the stuff is really saying the same stuff. Sure. And it's like people go on the spiritual marketplace and they're doing all this stuff and you got to move. I think that's the journey, right? Like people move through that level of complexity to realize it's a real simple message at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it, you're right. I think your point well taken. It's not easy. So Nick, you're quite the philosopher, dude. You're a deep dude, man. You are a deep dude. Yeah, don't judge a book by its cover. You know, six, I, uh, six, two forty <laughs> tattoos from Boston. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a student of psychology and I'm a practitioner of philosophy, and I'm I'm proud to to yeah. scream that from the rooftops, yeah. man. Yeah, I like it. Let's <laughs> let's move through to um, let's change uh, gear a little bit. Let's do it. I want to yeah, I want to talk about 2013 you know, you're, you're in the military, significant event. Can you walk us through what happened, man? Uh, this was on the back end of uh, a six month deployment. My third time over in Afghanistan, we went in in September of 2012 and we were set to leave towards the end of March of 2013. And on March 11th was the incident when when I was wounded for now that this would have been the third time I was wounded in combat. And, you know, we were getting ready to go on a, on a relatively large scale operation. We had a bunch of different partnered forces, local individuals we were going out to do work with, which was not uncommon for us. And as we got done, 
with our mission brief to the leaders of our partner force, as I was making my way towards my vehicle, one of the members of the Afghan National Police Force, uh, a unit and an individual that we had been working with and training and doing operations with for, for five and a half months, he jumped up on the back of a Ford Ranger pickup truck that had a mounted PKM belt fed machine gun attached to it and opened fire into me and my friends from about 15 feet away. And for your audience that isn't entirely familiar with a, with what a PKM belt fed machine gun is, it's a, it's an incredibly powerful weapon system that can fire a lot of really big spies bullets really, really fast. And that weapon can do some catastrophic damage from four or 500 meters away. You're talking 15, 20 feet and it, um, causes some damage. And although initially I was in a position in, in proximity to the, to the threat where I, I really could have done what I was supposed to do. I could have done my job. And that, that is to move behind something that can stop bullets and eliminate that problem. That, that's what I'm expected to do in that moment in time. And I've trained on that scenario hundreds and hundreds of times. And I, I'd done it for real many, many times. The thing that prevented me from doing what I'm expected to do is we had an infantry squad that was with us an infantry squad of about 12 guys that were attached to my special forces team. And we would take them out onto operations every now and then. And one of these young soldiers was set to be a driver for us this day, young kid, 18 years old, first deployment, fresh out of basic training. And although this, this threat is shooting at us, I see this soldier and he's just frozen like a deer in headlights, um, you know, 10, 15 feet in front of this guy. And seeing that and processing what I was seeing and putting into context, I made a very deliberate decision. This was not just an emotionally charged reaction. This was a, this was a deliberate response to what I was processing. I decided to move towards this soldier rather than move behind something that can stop bullets. And I get in between me and the shooter or in between the soldier and the shooter, I kind of turn my back. So the soldier and I are chest to chest. And that was when I was hit for the first time in the back of my right leg. And from that distance, that kind of weapon, it's like you're getting hit by a train. So it knocks me down on top of this soldier. We're laying on the ground chest to chest. And then I feel another three or four or five impacts to my legs. And again, man, this was the third time I had been wounded. So I'd been shot. I'd been blown up. So I, I was familiar with being wounded in combat and what that does to your body, the effect of the adrenaline kicks in and kind of the entire physiological process you go through when you're experiencing that kind of trauma. And I've been conditioned to a degree to deal with that. Um, so I know I'm hit. I grab the soldier. I drag him to myself about five or six feet behind a truck. And one of my teammates came in and he, he eliminates that threat. He smokes this guy. Well, this was the initiation of a complex ambush. So this was pre-coordinated with the enemy within this area. So this guy was going to shoot this gun off at us. 
And then at the same time, we would get engaged with machine gun and rockets from outside of our camp that we were staying at. So we're in a full blown firefight. This was their kind of Super Bowl event, right? We had been kicking their ass for five and a half months, and this was going to be the day that they turned the tide against us. So they, they threw the kitchen sink at us. So I know we're in a pretty significant gunfight, but I know I'm in no position to address any of those problems. So I checked the status of this soldier that I'm still laying on top of. And although he's in shock, he doesn't have any holes in his body and he can breathe and he can talk. So he's in relatively a good place. I then go to check my situation, rip my pant leg open. And my right leg, AJ, is just like mangled tissue and exposed bone. It looked like a shock had gotten a hold of it and just ripped it to pieces. So I see the severity of my leg and I, and I can see the river of blood that's flowing from me to where I had initially been hit. And when I say a river, I mean a legitimate river. I mean, it's just pouring out of me. So I know my femoral artery has been clipped or cut entirely, which my training tells me I have maybe eight or nine minutes left to live until I, unless I get this thing totally closed off. So I throw a tourniquet on, I wrench that down as tight as I can. Bleeding doesn't stop at all. I throw a second tourniquet on, lock that down. Um, bleeding may slow down a little bit, but really not much. One of my teammates gets to me and although I was trying to fight him off to go work on somebody else, because I knew I was dying. You know, I, I knew Were I was going dying. in a shock, Nick. Were you, was your body reacting to this? Yes. Not at this point. I was still, I was still really focused in, in, in the game during this, during these earlier points. And I, I knew that with proper triage being done, that I would be considered an expectant patient, meaning that I will die. Therefore you do not waste precious minutes or resources on a lost cause. and. I've been on both sides of doing triage. It's really difficult to do, um, but it's a requirement. So I thought I was, I thought I was helping one of my teammates by saying, Hey man, I'm, I'm a, like, go work on someone else that you can save. Cause I'm not one of them. He ignored me. He put on a third tourniquet and he got IV access for blood or meds that may be necessary. At that point, he was pretty much done with, with what he could do medically. So I'm laying there and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I can still feel blood trickling out of my body. I go to try to lift my leg, but my femur was shattered into about 15 different pieces. So that wasn't happening. So I just grabbed my leg with my hand and I lift it up. And this was the first time that the pain really hit me. Mm -hmm. And it came as, I mean, just a tidal wave through my body. And right about now is when I, I'm, I become close to passing out. I can see the the peripheral vision starting to go away. I'm just telling myself, you know, stay in the game, stay in the game. And I can see blood still trickling out of, of one of these wounds. So I'm like, Oh shit, man, I'm getting really low on time. Have I done everything I can do? And the answer was I hadn't. So I grabbed some gauze out of my, my medical kit and I loosen up one of the tourniquets on my leg. And I, I roll this gauze up into what we call a power ball, which is just gives the gauze a little bit of density. And uh, I just rammed this ball up into my thigh and I'm kind of reaching upwards towards my hip, towards my pelvis. And I'm trying to feel for the pulse of the femoral artery, which 
this is training that I had done in the past, but I can assure you it's a little <laughs> different when you're doing it on yourself. I mean, not only just the sheer shock of what you're of what's happening, but also medically, when you're losing that much blood, mm-hmm. your blood shunts inward to protect your organs for as long mm-hmm. as possible. So my hands are completely numb. I think I feel something. I don't know. I just go with it. I ram down as hot as I can. I feed the rest of the gauze inside my thigh. And then I, I lock a tourniquet down back on top of it. And, and then I went on, then I go unconscious. So I come to maybe 30 seconds later, 40 seconds later. And I realized that, okay, at this point, I don't know if what I did worked, but I do know that I am actually out of options at this point. So I just drug myself over maybe six, seven feet to where some of my teammates were laying. They had been wounded. There were 12 of us, 12 Americans that were wounded in total during this event, three of which uh, were killed. So I just drug myself over to where some of my teammates were, were laying. They were, you know, scared. They were in pain. I just decided that with the little time I have left on this earth, I would just spend it trying to, you know, comfort them. Far out. Phenomenal. So what happens? Well, from that point, I eventually end up getting onto a helicopter um, about an hour and a half later. I was on the ground about an hour and a half before they could land a helicopter. And although we had birds overhead within, you know, minutes because of the ongoing fight, they can't risk landing the bird until the situation on the ground gets under control that took anywhere between an hour and hour and a half so i finally get on a helicopter me and two of my teammates were on the first flight because we're we're the most severely wounded and we get to an outstation that had what's known as an fst which stands for forward surgical team which is a group of medical personnel that are trained to do a relatively high degree of medical interventions in a more austere, a more remote environment outside of an actual hospital. They flew us to that location because it was the closest location of trained doctors that we had in our proximity. When we get there, they pull us off the helicopter, myself in particular, but also one of my teammates, we needed blood really bad. The fact that I was even still alive at this point was something of a miracle. So I need a transfusion. I get, I get put on a transfusion and some time goes by and my entire body begins to crash. And the doctor's not exactly sure what the problem is, but they know I need to get to Bagram, which is where our closest military hospital was as soon as possible. So they put me back on a helicopter and they fly me to Bagram, which is about an 11 minute flight. Mm-hmm. And it's while I'm in the air, they go to change out the blood that they were giving one of my teammates. And they realized that they were giving him O positive, even though he is AB negative. And they said, wait a minute, why are we giving Owen O positive? And then they looked to see what they had given me. And they had given me AB negative. So essentially, they switched up our names. They gave him my blood type. They gave me his blood type. Well, fortunately for my boy, Owen, O positive, I'm a universal donor. I can give blood to anybody and be fine, but I can't receive blood from anybody. And AB negative is a very specific blood type. 
And that is what sent me crashing. So the doctors realized what happened and they said, Oh shit. Um, we definitely just killed this guy. So they call Bagram and I'm maybe five minutes out. And they said, we just pumped Nick full of like six or eight units of an incompatible <laughs> blood type. There's no way he survives the flight. So just be prepared to receive his body when he gets there. I land, they pull me off. Um, I'm basically being kept alive manually by the flight crew. They're breathing for me. I had totally coded. They had the panels out. Um, they were getting real creative on ways to keep me clinging to something. They throw me right into surgery. They innovate me. They put me on dialysis. They put me on another transfusion. They amputate my foot. Um, and then really I just, I remained in that, in that state where machines were pretty much keeping me alive. I had a very, very faint pulse. I couldn't breathe on my own. And that stayed the way it was for about three days. And, you know, at that time, man, I, I kind of slowly began to come back and it took another few days beyond that for me to be stable enough to survive an airplane trip to Germany, which is, uh, which is what happened. I get to Germany they amputate my leg up to the knee. And at this point they were really dealing with infection. That was the biggest problem was the infection that had set in. I was at Germany a day amputated to the knee. And then the next day I arrived at Walter Reed military medical hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, which is where, you know, I would really spend the next year of my life going through surgeries, learning how to live as an amputee, learning how to use a prosthetic and slowly but surely, you know, getting back after it. Hey folks, a quick break to thank you for joining us on the third year of Ultra Habits. A hell of a ride. Thank you for coming. Now, one of the things about having all these amazing conversations day in, day out, is I feel like I talk a lot, but I'm not always doing as much as I'd like to. I'm just not sharpening my sword the way that I'm used to. So I decided to put myself back under the heat. I will be embarking on a new crucible as I attempt a Guinness Book World Record feat, and more to be revealed on that later. But I want to document the journey, real, raw, uncut, uncurated, with a real, real focus on the habits that I'm going to be implementing on a daily basis to sustain me on this crazy journey. If you haven't already, subscribe to the newsletter. It's all there. It'll be www.ultrahabits.co. That's www.ultrahabits.co. Come along the ride. Let's do this together. Well, this whole experience in terms of it being a miracle, like how have you processed that? What does that mean to you? The short answer is uh, prior to that point, not really. Uh, not really. I wouldn't consider myself to have been a man of faith up until that point. When you get as close to death as I did, and really the fact that I lived violates a lot of laws of biology and completely blows out of the water all of our statistics as it pertains to traumatic survivability, I, without question, am supposed to be dead. You don't live from that kind of a wound being on the battlefield for that amount of time with the type of medical intervention that I had. Me ramming gauze into my own thigh and somehow 
pinching off the femoral artery bleed and able to maintain enough pressure on that with a tourniquet. That's, that's not <laughs> typically or ideally how that problem is solved. So it's difficult to go through that and come out on the back end and not at least glance in the direction of a higher power. And, you know, the term miracle, meaning something that is essentially impossible without the intervention of a higher power. And so even just as objectively and as science-based as I am, that is by definition a miracle, Mm -hmm. which by definition includes a higher power. Now, I didn't experience any kind of seeing the light or any kind of near-death experience uh, event. Nothing like that happened to me. Um, But I also can't deny that while my medics, my teammates, and a whole bunch of doctors and a whole bunch of other people all played a role in me being alive, I I can't avoid also believing Mm. that there was something of a higher power also playing a role. And that's just something that I've learned to one, have an enormous amount of gratitude for, but then, you know, well, why was I spared? How, how was it? I not so much how, but what am I supposed to do with this <laughs> gift that I've been given? So I'm supposed to do something with it that I know. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned faith, which is something that, comes up for me in a massive sense as I begin rehabbing myself slowly, but surely, and literally building myself up from the bottom. And we tend to look at the word faith as having this very biblical Mm -hmm. sense Mm -hmm. to it, right? Mm -hmm. Religious sense to Mm -hmm. it, which is accurate. There is another definition or another perspective of faith is a firm belief in something for which there is no proof. And I, 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 RJ, I lived by that mantra when I was in the hospital because it was at that point in the intensive care unit at Walter Reed, when I was still fighting for my life, that I set my sights and I made the decision that I was going back to my profession. I was going back to the exact same lifestyle I just left. That is what I'm going to do. It's never been done before. I haven't a clue as to how I'm going to do it. So for a while there, I was operating on that exact blind faith. No one really believed that it was possible for understandable reasons, but I believed it in my heart and my soul. And that faith that I maintained was strong enough for me to keep moving in the face of something that otherwise would be seen as impossible. Why did you feel like you wanted to go back? I mean, many people would argue, you know, after that, you're a hero, legitimate, like for real. You've done, you've been shot more times than Tupac and you've lived, you know, Mm -hmm. like why, why would you, what, what propelled you to want to go back? For me, it it wasn't, it wasn't so much uh, me wanting to go back. I, I had to go back. Mm -hmm. I I use the words, you know, I I made the decision at that point, but there really wasn't a decision to, to be made because I was able to recognize before this event happened, really, that I was put on this earth to be a warrior and to pledge an allegiance to a society in which I will defend at all costs. And that is very much 
deeply ingrained in who I am. Like I know what my purpose is on this planet, something which I know a lot of people struggle to find. I'm fortunate enough that I had found it within my profession, within my lifestyle. This is why I was here. This is why I am here. This is what I'm, this is what I'm intended to do. So laying there, uh, going through, you know, ended up being about 40 surgeries at Walter Reed as they were just incrementally amputating my leg bit by bit by bit, higher and higher and higher, trying to get a hold of this infection. And I'm coming out of anesthesia, back in anesthesia, pain management. I mean, I'm all over the place. But even then, I can deliberately remember saying, all right, eventually this is going to get taken care of. And then you'll be able to really figure this problem out. But that is what's going to happen. So to answer your question more acutely, brother, it's a passion for what I do. And when I say a passion, man, I'm not talking about me loving the fact that I'm a Green Beret. I'm saying... I love the game of earning my green beret every day. And there's a difference in that. It, it's a love of the process more so than you love the prize that comes with being it. I love earning it. Even the pots that are absolutely horrible and that, that completely suck. I love that. And I know that that's what I'm put on this planet to do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Th- having that level of clarity in my mission in life is the one thing that I could continuously grasp onto in the countless moments of doubt and failure and setbacks and fear and frustration. When it seemed like the wheels were all falling off. And for a half a second, I look at myself in the mirror and go, what are you even thinking of right now? Like this makes no sense. Cause I had plenty of those moments Mm. I could stop and be like, well, you don't have another option because this is who you are. Now suck it up, mm. learn from that failure and figure it out. That's a really important piece. And um, it's a piece that um, we talk a lot about at Ultra Habits is this, uh, this idea of identity and your way of being will always conform to the way that you see yourself, right? Like, mm. And that's kind of a law. And, you know, your identity and your sense of self was very much and is very much aligned with being a warrior. So your actions will conform um, and have conformed. Now, one thing I read, um, you know, you, you mentioned that losing your leg, obviously, it's, it's not a, a good thing and, and it's been a harrowing process. But in the grand scheme of things has enabled you to become more productive. Like you've actually optimized. How? There's a lot here. Um, (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's a lot. I mean, in in so many ways, this could be its own four hour conversation. Mm. The, the, the easiest one to hit that I think I would like people to resonate most with people is just the word efficiency. And, 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 you know, your name of your platform is ultra habits. And when you create ultra habits, it, it increases efficiency. You're able to be more productive. You're able to do more tasks that much more automated mm. that are part of a process that are, that's built to make progress. So efficiency is the one word when you ask, how did, how do you end up becoming more optimized? Because I am more productive, productive. I am more productive when I'm on two feet. We're human beings. This is a 
two-legged world that we live in as humans. When I'm on two legs, meaning my prosthetic is on my body, I'm more productive. I can move and I can use my hands at the same time, which is what makes me more productive. Yes, there are other ways that I can be mobile. I can use a wheelchair and I can use crutches. And I use both of them throughout most of my days, but I'm less productive because it's much Mm -hmm. more difficult for me to move and use my hands at the same time if I'm in a wheelchair or if I'm in crutches. Okay, productivity goes up when I'm on two legs. Roger that. Well, the second I strap my prosthetic on, it's only a matter of time before I have to take it off again. Now, I may have to take it off for a minute or for 10 minutes or for six hours to go to sleep or whatever, but I can't keep this thing on me indefinitely. Mm. So I got a lot of things I need to do, a lot of things I need to accomplish in order to get back to my team. And then even since then, in order to meet this next milestone or whatever I'm working towards, I got a lot of things I need to do. The second the prosthetic goes on, a clock starts to tick. Okay. I need to be as efficient as humanly possible while I'm in my most productive state. Now, guys, and I'm talking to you and your audience, man, I'm using this in the framework as a one-legged guy with a, putting a prosthetic on his body. But this principle applies to anyone, regardless of your circumstance or your scenario. You just imagine, when are you most productive? That could be a time of day. That could be following a particular task. That could be while you're alongside a particular person or people. Just think about when you're most productive. How do I maximize what I'm doing when I am most productive? And for me, it's being upright on two legs. So I got to be so crazy obsessed. I mean, I drove my wife crazy for a long time. She's used to my shenanigans by now. But meticulously, man, I mean, OCD, admittedly, looking Mm -hmm. at my day-to-day structure and how things were set up. Because if I strapped my leg on and I took nine steps, realized that I messed something up and needed to go back, that's Uh 18 steps that I'm never getting back. Mm -hmm. And that can't happen again. And of course it would happen again. And you fine tune and you refine Mm -hmm. and your process is updated, but it's never perfect. I've never hit a perfect day ever in my life, but just this continuous pursuit of trying Mm -hmm. to be just that much more efficient, Mm -hmm. which again is the word. So that Mm -hmm. is probably, I I, I would hope is the most translatable to the average individual out there. That's not dealing Mm -hmm. with an amputee prosthetic scenario. It's just recognizing in what state or under what conditions are we most productive Mm -hmm. and then looking to be able to maximize those moments as long and as efficient as possible. Yeah, that's remarkable. So we, we're going to start to land this plane, Nick, I could talk to you for hours. I have to say this this is one of the best conversations I've had in a long time. Like I think, you know, when I, when I get to dive into philosophy, um, elements of the physical, mental, the emotional, all in one, conversation it always uh it's always quite enjoyable so really appreciate you yeah it does it does it does um we're gonna have to do a round two i'm already thinking about how that looks and what that's gonna look like but um before we go can you impart maybe one or two habits that you embrace that you think would be important for our audience and it doesn't necessarily have to be a habit just a way of being, a way of operating. Uh, I'm going to hit two, man. Um, one, and for me, and this is going to sound very typical, there's a nuance. For me, it's waking up really, really early. And believe me, 
the rise and grind thing, sometimes it irritates me a bit. Here's my point. Cause, cause not everyone lives a nine to five, right? We got people that work at night, people that work odd times, people with different tasks. It's like, Oh, well I work 12 to seven. So I guess this doesn't apply to me. Okay. It's a fair point. The reason why being up early is so critical for me is because on most days, anyway, I'm operating under, you know, an eight to four type schedule. When I am up before everybody else, or more importantly, when I am up before my obligations to others begin, that's, that's the key. I am buying myself time and space to focus on myself guilt-free. And those of us that have families and other responsibilities and all these things, once the day gets going, it can be really difficult to focus on ourselves. And we talked about this already, man. You know, the importance of dedicating to your own personal growth actually enables you to do better for those you care about. By me waking up at four, for example, well, no one else is going to be up moving until probably six, maybe seven. That's two, two and a half, maybe three hours where I can be entirely selfish and mm. do the things that I want to do, whether that's read, workout, write, play a video game. I don't actually do that, but you, you've earned yourself some time and space to focus on you, mm. right, which I think is incredibly important. So for me, that happens to be really early in the morning, but for your audience, it can be any time of the day. Yeah. But specifically carving that out and dedicating that to your own personal growth and wellness and development. And then the second habit or practice is the use of visual reminders. Um, in my book, I, call, I use the term mementos. It's just a fancy word. And this is anything revolutionary. Just visual cues that are strategically placed wherever our eyeballs will naturally go throughout a normal day. To remind us about what it is we're working towards, whether that's a short-term goal or whether that's a long-term mission. But these remind us. What's critical about this working is the preparedness. These things have to be there before we need them. And when you get 10 hours of sleep and you had all the food and you feel great, mm -hmm. you don't need those things. And that's fine. It's when you're beat up, tired, sore, yeah. hungry, cold, et cetera that's when we're going to rely on these things. And if they're not pre-positioned where we're naturally going to see them, they're going to be worthless to us. And some of my most extreme points, I would actually create a picture or a phrase and I would tape it to my phone before I went to bed because that was my alarm clock and it gave me a physical barrier I had to get past to hit that snooze button. And I can't tell you how many times that one piece of paper is the one thing that's, you know, that moment goes off, IJ, right? Alarm goes off. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. without question, I'm hitting snooze right now. It's yeah. it. As soon as I find it's going off, I've made up my mind. That one piece of paper is like, shit, you know what? Mm -hmm. I got to get up and get after it. What a way to close out. Thank you so much for your time, Nick. I really appreciate it, man. Great talk, IJ. Hey, man. And I just want to say thank you for reaching out. This is a great conversation, but I'm a fan, brother. So, amazing work. Please keep it up. Um, I'll be following and listening moving forward, man. So I appreciate everything you're doing.